Zach Lowe, I always love having you on to preview the NBA season on this show because I love the soap opera, right? I, I love mess, as Marie Kondo would say. But your true passion here is actually just watching these games, right? And so I, I have to wonder just how irritating it is to cover a sport where the actual sport can often feel like an afterthought. I'm used to it by now, and I like the soap opera almost as much as other people do. The Brooklyn soap opera has certainly been entertaining, and then there are sort of less entertaining, sadder, but more serious soap operas that are no fun to talk about. But yes, I do think the NBA has some issue that um, it's a basketball league where a lot of the fans don't really care about watching basketball, which is weird. Um, it's it hard is. to imagine that being a problem in football or, or baseball, but yeah, I love the games and Enough people seem to love the games that I still have a job, so. <laughs> so in the course of doing your job, what is the thing that immediately springs to mind when I ask you what you're just viscerally excited to actually watch this season? Like, what's the person? What's the scene? What's the thing? What's the feeling that you're imagining as the season is about to start here? It's not one person. It's the fact that this is as wide open as the championship race has been since I can remember covering the league. And mm. everybody almost is healthy. And there are at least six teams and probably more that can convince themselves we actually have a chance to win the whole thing. You may have heard that the NBA has just gone through the most dramatic offseason that anyone can remember. And you may also have just heard on this very podcast how up to a third of the league might be tanking for an 18-year-old alien named Victor Wembanyama. And all of that is true. But that is also not what we're here to discuss right now because the NBA does happen to have more star talent, top to bottom, than any year I can personally remember. And anyone who is telling you that they know who is going to win it all is a liar. So today, as the season tips off tonight, we consult the very particular brain of Zach Lowe, who studies these games more deeply than anyone else in the business. And he makes us smarter about the drama on the court itself. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Tuesday, October 18th. This is ESPN Daily. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely. Drake wisely. So Zach, when I look at what Vegas has, and I turn to Vegas because I just, I think their hive mind is instructive, if not entirely trustworthy here in terms of their basketball analysis. And what Vegas likes, it seems, they like Milwaukee, they like Boston, they like Golden State, they like Brooklyn, and they like the Clippers. And I actually want to start with the surprise that I felt when I saw the Clippers really up at the top here on this tier. Yeah, I, I guess if people are surprised, it's just because Kawhi hasn't played in a full season and Paul George missed a lot of last season. And then players 3 to 14 are just sort of these guys that are 
good, like pretty good. NBA nerds all can tell you about the stuff Robert Covington does well in his on-off rating. And like mm-hmm. Nick Batum is smart and throws extra passes. But are they like good, good? Do they have a third best guy that's like Marcus Smart good, Mikhail Bridges good, Michael Porter Jr. good? I think that's the surprise. But I think the Clippers are in the absolute inner circle of title contenders and probably after what happened in Golden State would be my very tentative pick to make the finals in the West. Which is, which is, you know, again, I'm trying to negotiate my rational brain here, which knows that Kawhi Leonard is back with my emotional brain, which is like not ready for him to be the version of himself that was an apex predator in the league. What is your expectation level? What do you know about Kawhi having talked to people around the league about what he's supposed to be like now? Yeah, no one around the Clippers really is excited to ever talk about Kawhi because they know (laughs) Kawhi doesn't want any of them talking about him. Exactly. They would like to very much have Kawhi Leonard be happy and on their team for several more years. Look, I mean, Kawhi is still not old. He actually does not have a lot of minutes under his belt for his age because of how many games he's missed due to injuries and other things. And people tend to come back from ACLs pretty strong. And and he's taken, like Jamal Murray, more time than is typical in these recovery cases. So my expectations are, by the time it counts, he's going to be Kawhi. And if that's the case, they're a contender. But the other thing about the Clippers... The parallels between the Clippers and the Nets are just absolutely irresistible. Like the two <laughs> Lay them out seconds, for us, yeah. Well, the, 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 the two second sister teams in their own cities who kind of built up these plucky, overachieving rosters that they then use the appeal of that pluck to flip all of that stuff for superstar talent. And then just for reasons that we can debate, we can believe in or not believe in, they just both appear to be cursed forever. Like, it's like something bad always <laughs> happens to each of them at the worst time. And you're trying to talk yourself, for me, it's the Clippers into thinking they can win the championship. It's like, well, what's going to what's gonna happen this year? Yeah, it, it, the, the sweat pooling from Steve Ballmer's armpits, will that create a puddle that Kawhi Leonard's giant quads, apparently, are going to slip on? I keep saying this because I don't think people realize it. The pandemic has warped our sense of time and seasons following each other. This is the fourth year of Kawhi and Paul George. It's four years now Mm. since there was a literal earthquake in Las Vegas when they signed Kawhi and acquired Paul George for a million draft picks. Year one was the bubble where they looked like maybe the best team in the NBA and completely imploded. Year two was, all right, we broke the conference finals curse. Like, that's a big deal. We broke the conference finals curse. And while we were doing that, Kawhi Leonard got injured in our playoff run didn't get any farther but still it was important for them to break the finals curse and in a weird way that is a reason I'm kind of optimistic about the Clippers is they finally got that proverbial sort of monkey off their back and like I keep saying this this is the biggest season in the history of the franchise and Mm. the only other one in play I think is 2014 which is when the Sterling story broke I think this is right right if it doesn't happen this year age starts to be against them in terms of, like, when is it going to happen again? And so as the Clippers' optimism is trending upwards, and you mentioned the Golden State Warriors' pessimism is is also taking hold here, 
what is the situation as you now understand it, Zach? And look, I, again, the the soap opera stuff, the Draymond, the the sociocultural debates about when punching someone in the face is actually more justified than not. I want to actually leave that to the side here. As much as I love that part, just just tell me what you think this team is gonna be. It's interesting. I'm super high on the Warriors. I was high on them last year, and I thought I've, I've thought all summer they could and should be even better mm-hmm. than they were last year because Clay is in his second year after the catastrophic injuries. Uh, Wiggins, you know, is as good as he was last year and as great as he was in the finals. It takes time for players that are new-ish to how the Warriors play to really feel how to fit next to Steph, Clay, and Draymond. And that was really his first year of being able to do that. He's got another year now. He's under his belt of like, okay, I understand my place in this ecosystem. And the young guys should all be better and ready to assume some kind of semblance of roles. And, and you know, they've, they retain some players, but not all of them. And then on the flip side, those young guys have no track record, really. And that's why some of the projection systems are lower on them than I am, and including some that are like weirdly, weirdly low on the words. But I just think mm. the way they play, the culture they have, setting aside what happened last week, Pool in particular leading a group of young players that seems to be ascending. I, I think they should be just loaded for a, a repeat run this year. But I do want to know how good you think Jordan Poole really is. Because the Warriors have now signed him to this eye-opening four-year, nine-figure extension. And the same goes for Andrew Wiggins, too, incidentally. But Jordan Poole has gone from this little brother character who's auditioning for the role of third Splash Brother to what now, exactly? It's interesting. You know, they couldn't play the three Splash Brothers very much against the best teams in the NBA in the last two rounds of the playoffs because defensively it just didn't work. Teams went at pool relentlessly and his minutes actually dropped mm. in the finals pretty precipitously. Now he still made some big shots. I don't know how excited Steve Curry is to try. Remember the pool party lineup was like yes. a thing for a hot second. <laughs> the, the the three Splash Brothers plus Wiggins plus Draymond. And then they totally went away from it because it was too small and too vulnerable defensively. I think what he is is a really creative shot maker, a super underrated passer who is the easy front runner for six man of the year and gives them, you know, the Warriors play this like beautiful style, beautiful game, passing, cutting and whatever. And like, that's really cool. And it works really well because they have Steph Curry. They still need someone on that team who, against switching defenses, elite defenses, can just be like, Yo, I can play outside of that system. I don't need all this fun <laughs> stuff. Like, I can just shake dudes and get my shot anytime I want. And that's what Jordan Poole is. So, again, these, like, stock market arrows, bunch of teams going up. The Phoenix Suns, absolutely a big red down arrow, Zach. There's so much there. Obviously, changing an owner at the top of the list, but... What should Suns fans feel about a team that was supposed to make the NBA Finals for the second year in a row? I think they should still feel pretty good about the team. It's a good team. You know, there was this sort of two-year interregnum in the West with the Clippers injuries and the Nuggets injuries and the Warriors, you know, trying to find their way back again. And now everyone's everyone at least starts the season back. And so the Suns... It's not quite fair to say that they stepped into a void at the top of the West because they earned their way there, but there is no void anymore now. And 
between the Sarver stuff, the Aiton stuff, and the Crowder stuff, and Chris Paul being 37 years old, there's just like a lot of stuff. And you can't have a lot of stuff going on and really, really, really be confident in your ability to win three playoff series in the Western Conference. What they do have are all their draft picks. And they tried to get into the Durant stuff in the summer. I don't really know how far that got. They do feel now a team to me that needs to make at least a minor upgrade trade to get back into the inner, inner circle at this point, given all the drama and just how old Chris Paul is. Well, okay, so hold on, because you mentioned the interregnum. I do want to continue like the papal metaphor here. Are we entering like the beginning of Chris Paul's final, his last dance, Zach? Is that where we are? Is that what it's feeling like finally to you? I mean, he's 37 and he's a six foot point guard. The fact that we haven't had the last dance already is a tribute to how rare he is as a player and a basketball genius. At some point, it's coming. And I do think he's a player that's smart enough and skilled enough that his last dance can be a long one, much like Vince Carter had this sort of late career coda as as support player Vince Carter. Like, mm-hmm. Chris is, doesn't have the size of, of a wing like that. But I, I don't think it's like Chris Paul goes from point god to nothing. I think there's sort of an in-between space that he can navigate for a while. But we're not there yet. He's still the point god now until until proven otherwise. He is the point god. So the team that is trying to navigate maybe the most uncertainty of any of these contenders, Zach, is the team you probably know the best of anybody. And the Boston Celtics, they did make the NBA Finals. They lost to the Warriors. But to summarize just a maddeningly vague news cycle here, their head coach, Ime Yudoka, got suspended for the entire season last month for what was deemed a violation of team rules stemming from an improper intimate relationship with a female staffer. And obviously there are now a lot of serious off-court questions, which we are still actively monitoring. But in the meantime, Joe Mazzula is the assistant coach who is now the interim head coach. And pretty much nobody I know expects Yudoka to ever return to Boston at all. And I just have no idea how any of this is going to play out on the court. So what are you expecting as the basketball here is concerned? I think they're still going to be awesome. I don't want to say a calm seems to have set in, but the level of crisis and anxiety that was there when all of this was happening and it was happening fast and it was information was flowing even inside the organization in sort of unpredictable paces. Yes. That seems to have settled. There's optimism that Joe Mazzulla is as ready for this as a 34-year-old thrust into this job in this circumstance could be. And the talent is the talent. If they're healthy and whole when it counts, I still think they're going to be as good as the team that almost won the title last year. Um, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are running that offense. Mm. And the ball just got a little sticky. I think they were tired from a long season and a long playoff run. But yeah, Malcolm Brogdon is just another sort of ingredient similar to what Derek White brought to the team, except he's an elite shooter too. Just quicker ball movement, switchability on defense. He gives them more wing depth to play smaller lineups with just one big on the floor, which are really, really good lineups for them. And just sort of the more shooting, passing, catch-and-go guys you have, the better. And the defense, which had been hailed as one of the greatest we've ever seen, Time Lord, obviously Robert Williams is hurting, but that degree of respect for this defense, does that feel the same way to you for this season? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's actually going to be interesting because what they what they did with Time Lord was a little bit unconventional in that they took their center and they had him guard wings and just said, you guard the worst wing on the other team, go in the corner, but be this like roving shot blocker. And then we're going to switch everything around that. And you saw smart teams begin to digest that and tinker with some counters to it, none of which really worked all that well, which is a tribute to how good Boston's personnel is. And I think with a with a whole offseason, every team that cares enough is going to have had a, one assistant coach whose job for like a week in the offseason was watch film of Boston's defense mm. and figure out how we can go at it a little bit. But look, I mean, Boston's postseason run was a little ragged. The Miami series and the Milwaukee series were a little dicey. Yeah, close calls. The last 45 games of the regular season, they outscored their opponents by 14 points per 100 possessions. Number two in the league was like seven. I mean, they were so dominant that I'm pretty optimistic they're going to be right back in the mix this year. Yeah, there was this thing about how as soon as it got to 2022, the Boston Celtics were just the greatest team in the NBA. And the team that a lot of people like at the top of the East still is Milwaukee. Milwaukee feels so boring in comparison to all of the storylines we talked about. And we'll get to Brooklyn, by the way, in tomorrow's episode with Nick Friedle. So we'll spare you the Brooklyn analysis. Oh, thank God. But Milwaukee, in contrast, man, it's it's like the little suburb. It's like Pleasantville in comparison. No, I've said before, the Bucks are just feet up on the desk, <laughs> sipping tea, watching the league explode around them, watching the fires ignite everywhere around them. Like, everyone forget we won the title two years ago with our big three. Yeah, that, we, got, we, got, we, we got Giannis. You remember him? That guy? That We didn't have our big three in the playoffs last year. We still managed to take Boston to seven games without Chris Middleton. We got, mm. you know, best player in the world plays for us. I'm a little bit worried about their, their depth below maybe guy number seven in the rotation, but I think enough of those guys behind them will will become playable, in part because Giannis makes her, makes everyone's job really easy. And I, I just think he's the best guy. They're hungry. They have had an off-season of, of real rest, which they did not have last year when Drew Holiday and, and Chris Middleton went right to the Olympics after the finals. Yes. And I, I just think Giannis is coming for everybody this year. Okay, so Giannis becoming even more terrorizing. What does that even look like? I think he's become a better passer. Year by year, he becomes a little bit better of a passer, which makes him more effective on the block and from all other kind of spots on the floor. He's got more confidence in his free throws now. And never that he never really wavered considering how much of an issue it seemed to be. Right, but in Eurobasket, he was like actually like seeming like a competent free throw shooter at the very least. He's been a 70% free throw shooter in the regular season. It's dipped a little bit in the playoffs, but, and I just think he has a greater grasp of both the game unfolding around him and his own physical gifts and, and his own physical power. And I just know that whole Celtics team, when they got done with that series, they were relieved and just, I don't want to see that dude again for a long time. <laughs> So after the break, the other dudes, the big names that opposing teams might not want to see again either.
two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, Zach, at this point, I just want to begin to mine you for insight into some of the best and most intriguing stars in the league, the guys that have thumbs on the scale of real NBA power. And I want to start with Luka Doncic because I just watched him rip through Eurobasket this summer. He was really impressive. He looked like he was in shape. And now he's back with the Mavericks who already have been treating him as a heliocentric player, as it's called, the son of their solar system. So how much ceiling is really left for Luka to reach? I think there is upside left. Uh, Offensively, I mean, it's just if he shoots well, there's nothing you can do. And the jump shot, the, the step back three has been up and down, as those tend to be. They're the hardest shots in the sport. I think it's just kind of conditioning and commitment to the other stuff. I mean, he was embarrassed in game two of that Sun series when they went at him possession after possession on defense and just roasted him. Here's Booker. Drives on Luta and gets the floater to go. Over Doncic, it's Crowder. Crowder had three threes in the first round. And after that, by his standards, he kind of locked in. It was like, I don't want to be embarrassed anymore. And if he starts to commit to that a little bit more, the weaknesses, if there are any, disappear. I also, I think he should become a more frequent post-up player because I, I just think, when he gets little guards on him, there's just nothing anybody can do with him down there. And he's not going to be a huge volume post-up player, but I think he can get to a point where he goes there. It becomes as much a part of his game as it was like LeBron's game in Miami at the at the peak of his powers. Okay, so you mentioned Luka needing to be on the block more. What do you want Zion Williamson to do, Zach? Everything. I want all the Zions. Give me all the Zions. I want point Zion. So there's this whole, I don't think it's a widespread anxiety, but a lot, some people will bring it up to me and say, well, man, the Pelicans, you know, CJ McCollum wants the ball. Zion wants the ball. Sure. Brandon Ingram wants the ball. Like, how are they going to do that? How are they going to manage that? And I don't care because if Zion has the ball in transition, just get out of his way. Oh, Williamson off that baseline. He can run, pick and roll with either of those two guys screening for him. He can screen for either of those two guys in pick and roll. He can post mismatches. 
And I just want to see all of it. And I think all of those guys are smart enough and unselfish enough that it shouldn't be a problem. And they can just read the situation, read and react on every possession. But I want all the Zions. I want every iteration of Zion. And I think I'm super high on the Pelicans. I think they could win 50 games. They're so fun. The Zion multiverse is such a fun thing to contemplate. But for people who missed that stretch before Zion got hurt, where he was playing point guard, what is that in terms of a physics question? What is it in terms of a basketball strategy answer? It's, I mean, everything <laughs> with Zion I laugh, is... I laugh when I think about him barreling and running an offense simultaneously. Well, that's the thing. Everyone was, that, that it is a physics question. It's It's just like mass plus speed plus distance kind of stuff. Like, yeah, when Zion's playing point guard, if it's a stable half-court situation... You're going to go under the screen against Zion and dare him to shoot jumpers because he doesn't want to shoot jumpers. And guess what? If you go under the screen, you're A, you're giving him a certain runway of speed. Yes, you're creating space for takeoff. So good luck meeting him on the other side of that because that's not going to be any fun. And if you get held up for a millisecond getting around that screen, then you just might as well not be there. That's If he's inside that territory at all, it's over. He's at the rim. We used to see it with Russ, too. Prime Russ. Like, if he went under screens and got held up for a second, he was so fast and so explosive, it didn't matter. That's the point Zion math, I guess. But, okay, so the math in terms of another guy who's, like, an air traffic control problem, and I'm just going to throw guys at you that I am just personally, like, geeked to watch, is John Morant. This is the heir to whatever we thought, hoped Russell Westbrook was at one point, could still be. But where is Ja in terms of what his superpowers are as you've come to understand them? He was second team All-NBA last year, so he's pretty close to the inner circle of the very greatest players. And, you know, it's interesting. They were, I think, 22-3 and in the regular season without Ja, which began to raise the question of sort of like, hmm, what's going on here? Is he such a weak spot defensively that they don't lose as much as you'd think without him? And I think in the playoffs, it laid bare like, yeah, that regular season record is nice and it means something. But in the playoffs, you just need a guy who can take the ball and get wherever the hell he wants with it. And that's Ja. Like, there's just nothing you can really do to keep him out of the paint. That's just the starting point of what I think makes him special as a player. And the more he makes pull-up threes and he started to get braver doing it last year when people went under screens, then it's just a swarm and recover defense every single time Memphis has the ball. And it's it's hard to nail that over and over again. Right. But even even just the art of of Ja, Zach, beyond the science of how he does any of this, it's the art to me because when he is fully extended, reaching back in full control of every limb like he's doing this midair modern dance routine, it is so fun that it feels like it verges on a guilty pleasure. It's so much fun it makes me worried. And obviously everyone is worried for his like physical safety when he's up in the air all the time drawing contact. But I mean... You could argue he had the two highlights of the season last season. Yes. The dunk over Malik Beasley, over and through Malik Beasley. (laughs) Morant downhill into the lane. He hangs it. Oh, my goodness. He jumps right over Malik Beasley with a right-handed hammer. Oh, Lord. 
in the playoff game where they were down by 13 points or something and like really needed a momentum boost at the end of the yeah. third quarter. And then the flying Superman block against Avery Bradley on the Lakers. Avery Bradley with the deflection against Bang! It honestly looked like if you watch the video and just sort of suspend it looks reality, fake. it looks fake. It looks like he's just gonna keep flying into the upper deck and like through a hole in the roof of the Staples Center and out into into the world. Right. It looked like if you were to follow John ja Morant to its logical conclusion, you would wind up, yeah, on the moon. Can I tell you my favorite John ja Morant thing though? Please. And this is like very NBA nerd, but we're talking about this guy like a superhero, right? And he has this super athleticism. He could very easily just make it all about him. Like every possession is about me. I want to average 30 a game. I want to make a highlight every possession. That's kind of what I want for him, Zach. He's smart enough to understand how he can take his teammates with him instead of playing almost outside of them. And so he's saying, he's saying, come with me to space. We, there's room for all of us here on this shuttle. The most underrated part of his game is he's a great cutter, which is not something you say about a 22-year-old ball handling star. He's a great cutter because he's so fast and he doesn't just cut the score. He cuts because he knows if I cut back door here, that guy comes to guard me here and Desmond Baines open for three. And when he's bringing the ball up, it'll be like one on three. And Ja can go one on three. You know he can. He knows mm -hmm. he can. He probably wants to every single time because he can dunk on someone's face. And a lot of times he'll slow up because he knows I got Desmond Bain trailing me over here. Dylan Brooks trailing me over here. Whoever, Brandon Clark coming in for a lob. If I slow down, the defense is going to kind of outrun those guys and I'm going to be able to pitch back to someone for an open three. And it's little stuff like that that, A, almost every player in the history of the sport needs their teammates to win at the highest level. He understands that. And B, he understands what it means to be an empowering star teammate, what that will make his teammates feel, the level of buy-in it will create to defense and rebounding and the stuff that isn't fun about basketball, isn't as fun as scoring and that you need to win. And like he's had that in his DNA since he came into the league. And it's a really rare and special thing for a young star player. Yeah, I now want you to just create a mixtape, Zach, of Ja Morant cuts. I want literal deep cuts from you. But but speaking of, of cutting deeply, it, it does all bring me to the team that is about to do that again at this rate, as they do year after year to me. And, and the biggest question I have for the Philadelphia 76ers, of course, is about James Harden, because this is the player's act that everybody I know asks me about. And I am stuck now trying to figure out if the postseason last year, where he looked like he was just fully cooked, if that is a prologue to this season, or if we're about to get a James Harden who might finally make this team the best version of itself. It's the best Sixers team of the Embiid era. Mm. The only other one that's even in the conversation is the half season of Jimmy Butler that got them yeah. to the Kawhi shot, Game 7. James Harden is one of the greatest offensive players in the history of the sport. He changed how offense can look in the NBA. He stretched it to its absolute limits. He inspired opposing defenses to stretch their playbooks to places that no one had ever seen before, playing on his back 
playing all sorts of crazy, unconventional schemes because they had no answer for him. And we are two years minimum, maybe three, into me personally not caring anymore. Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I, like, it's cool that you did all that. I voted you MVP and first team all NBA. All that stuff happened. I'm with you, man. If you score 38 and 15 against Charlotte, in December, like, I really just don't care. Yeah, not not the thing I am curious about whether you can do or not. All I care about right now is that the last time we saw you, it was 3-2 against Miami in the second round, and the Heat came into Philly. We're like, we're ending this now. We're punching you in the face. We're ending it now. And James Harden vanished for the entire second half of the game. Vanished. Didn't Zach, want the ball. Zach, Zach. Didn't touch the ball. My theory was, is he just hurt? Is that, I mean, am I, am I bailing him out? Or what, what am I doing there by theorizing that? He had a great game four of that series to tie it 2-2. Um, he was dealing with hamstring stuff off and on, and that is an off and on thing. He looked like he didn't care about being out there. And yes. then after the game, he gave some piddling excuse about how, well, you know, the ball just never found its way back to me. You know, I feel like the ball moved and, you know, just didn't get back to me. Why weren't you more aggressive? Um, like I just said, we run offense, the ball, you know, just didn't get back to me. As if he were George Niang or something. <laughs> Apologies to George Niang, who's a fine player, but the ball needs to find George <laughs> Niang. The ball doesn't need to find James Harden. So, look, it's all there for Philly. They have everything, and they're so good that they don't need James Harden to be Houston James Harden ever again, let alone in elimination games. They don't even need him to be great in elimination games. It would be helpful, but if Joel Embiid's great and Tyrese Maxey is great, they just need productive, workmanlike James Harden or something like that. <laughs> and so let's let's see it. But they're set up to win even if he's just sort of merely good when it matters. And that's, we'll wait and see. Mm. All right, Zach, you mentioned you got the Bucks winning the title. You have who else in the NBA Finals? Are we going Clippers-Bucks at the very end here? Tentatively Clippers-Bucks. Don't feel good about it, but I never feel good about it, so. <laughs> Zach Lowe, thank you for caring still as much as you do. Pablo, it's always good to see you, and uh, it's very fitting we finished on the Sixers. We always do. We always do. My sanity follows, yeah. Uh, I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>